I would invite children to come forward at this time. Come on down. Good morning. How are you? Good. This morning, uh, did you know that the Winter Olympics have been going on? Did you know that? Have you been watching any of the Winter Olympics? No, you don't like the cold sports? <laughs> we don't get to play very many cold sports around here, do we? I, I do like watching them, though. I like watching especially things like uh, snowboard cross, which is just weird but exciting. And I also like watching curling, which is exciting but in a very different way. <laughs> But those are some of the sports I like. But you know what they all have in common. All these sports at the Olympics, what do they have in common? Is that everybody's wanting to get what? What do they want to win? If they get first place, what do they win? A medal, yeah. What kind of medal? What do you think? Is it gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal? What are they wanting to get? Gold medal, that's right. Yeah, that's what they're wanting to get. And that's what they get if they get first place. And that got me to thinking that there is actually something in the Bible that Christians talk about as being the golden rule. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, well, you're getting ready to hear about it. (laughs) That's a good thing you came today. Here we go. So it's something that Jesus talks about where it has to do with how we treat other people. And this makes sense because he did say when somebody asked him what the greatest commandment is, love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we say, okay, what's that look like? How do we do that? Now, have you seen the movie Encanto? Yes. Yeah, you like it? I do too. <laughs> there's, a, there's actually a lot of stuff I like about it, but there's this one part in there where Mirabel is supposed to be working things out with her sister. You remember this? And then she's talking with her uncle, and she's like, yeah, but my sister this, my sister that, my sister this. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> it's not about her fixing things. It's about you fixing it with her. And I love that part because it reminds me of this golden rule. All right, you ready to hear what it is? All right, here it is. This is in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus says, okay, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, if you, it's like, if you're forgetting all the laws, you're like, I can't remember. Am I supposed to do this? He's like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> don't worry about that. Here's the thing, that this is what it actually looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And um, he says, to do to others what you would have them do to you. So here's what that means. A lot of times what we do is we think of somebody who we're not getting along with. And we think, okay, how should I treat them? We go, well, what did they do to me? I'll just do the same thing to them. That makes sense, right? That's what most people do, but that's not what Jesus says is the golden rule. Or we could go, well, I know what I'll do. I'll think about how they would treat me if the situations were reversed. If I were in their place, what would they do to me? And then I'll just treat them like that. Is that what we should do? No, a lot of people live like that. That's not what Jesus says to do. And it makes sense that he would not say to do that because what we're doing there is looking at somebody that we think we're really sure that they are doing what is wrong. And then we're going to say, so I'm going to take this person that I think is doing wrong and I'm going to use their behavior as a standard for my behavior? That's weird. That's just saying I want to do wrong too. And so Jesus has a much higher standard. And he says, here's what you do instead. 
you think about that person that you're not getting along with, and you say, okay, if they were to do right by me, what would that look like? And then he says, now go do that to them. And that is what we call the golden rule. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because most people in the Olympics don't get the gold medal, do they? No, most people don't. But some do. And Jesus says in this whole world, most people don't take this narrow road. But some do. And he said, you know what? It's actually the way that leads to life. And that's a life with God that goes on forever. So we might forget a lot of things. But let's try to remember this one. It's the golden rule. You remember what it is? It's so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Got it? Got it. (laughs) And it's just that easy. Now all we have to do is go do it. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for showing us the ways that are good and right and true. And God, we know that on our own, it just is not possible to follow this way. But Lord, we know that we're not on our own, that you are with us, that you give us your spirit, that you walk with us and you encourage us and that you strengthen us and you remind us of what is good and true and right. And God, even in the times when we, when we fall down, we mess up, you help us get back up and you help us keep on going in your way. God, we thank you for being so good and so forgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. We are not going to get the whole story here. We're just going to get the first kind of two-thirds of this story, and then we're going to leave it with a cliffhanger. This is Mark Mark 5, verse 21 through 34, and looking at a time when Jesus gets interrupted and how he deals with that and handles that. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed to understand it and to uh, seek to live it. God, that we would let your word be planted in our hearts, that it would grow and that our lives would bear the fruit that you have made us to bear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Mark 5, 21 to 34. It was when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had, 
Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That's the cliffhanger. We'll find out what happens with Jairus' daughter next week. Turning then to our New Testament reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. As Paul continues his letter to the church in Corinth. And he says, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. This is the word of the Lord. God. Well, we ended our gospel reading with a cliffhanger this morning, and we are also going to uh, end our sermon text from the Old Testament with a cliffhanger this morning. And there is a good reason for that, actually two good reasons for that. And it's not the usual reasons that you encounter cliffhangers. It's not just so you'll come back next week. That's what the... Uh, that's typically where you find a cliffhanger at the end of a chapter of a book, and it's like, oh, I got to read the next chapter, or the end of a an episode of a TV show. Oh, I got to just, I got to watch one more, one more, or uh, the end of a movie where they are planning a sequel, and you can tell. <laughs> and so you have these these cliffhangers so that you come back for more. That's not why we're having these cliffhangers. There's two reasons that we're ending on cliffhangers today. One is 
because if we went ahead and told the whole story, we'd be here much longer than you planned on today. And then secondly is that cliffhangers are how life is. That you are probably in your own life right now experiencing multiple cliffhangers in your life. There are things right now that if somebody were to say, oh, how's that going to work out? You'd be like, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm still waiting to see. And so in, in this way, we will experience uh, these cliffhangers that remind us that we do live by faith and not by sight, that we walk in what we know today and we trust God for what is coming, that he is the author of the whole story and he will work things out beautifully. We'll see this through the rest of Genesis, but for now we're going to read a section of Genesis. This is chapter 42, verses 1 through 28. This is the part of the story where Joseph's brothers, Joseph being uh, the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery in Egypt because they were jealous of him because of these, uh, the favoritism his father showed him as well as the dreams that he had that seemed to put him over them. And where we left off, the story last time, Joseph had actually been wrongly imprisoned while he was in slavery in Egypt, but through a series of dreams, God has raised him back up out of prison and now as second in command of all of Egypt, and he's overseeing this uh, food distribution, collection and distribution plan to deal with seven years of good crops they were going to have, and then seven years of famine they were going to have. And so he's collecting it during the good years and selling it to people in the hard years. And that's where we pick up the story, is in this time now of famine. We pick up the story where Joseph's brothers are still back at home in Canaan with their father. As far as their father knows, Joseph is dead. As far as anybody knows, he could be dead. Joseph, meanwhile, is actually second in command in all of Egypt. And it's the only place around that still has food because of what Joseph has done. That's where we pick up the story. Famine all around. Nobody's growing anything. Egypt is the only one who has stuff. So Genesis chapter 42. is When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. All right, so far so good. This is the plan. The mission is simple. All you have to do is go from Canaan to Egypt, buy food, bring it home. Pretty simple, right? It's like go to the store, buy the groceries, bring them home. Not a problem. But if you've ever watched a movie of any kind, (laughs) you know that things are never as simple as they seem, right? That if the movie opens up and it's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the store and you're going to buy the food and you're going to come home. And then they go to the store and they buy the food and they come home and that's the whole movie. You're like, well, that was a terrible movie. 
Because what always happens instead is you, okay, we're going to go to the store, and then something happens that interrupts the plan. Ah, now we have a movie, (laughs) right? This is when we were looking at Mark 5 a little bit ago. This is what happens with Jesus. Is he's on his way. Jairus says, come, heal my daughter. And Jesus is on his way. But then, uh, doesn't just happen that easily. Something interrupts. I go, ooh, well, how's he going to respond? What's he going to do? Because it's in these interruptions to our plans, it's these interruptions to what we think is going to be uh, just, oh, yeah, I'll just go over there. We'll just do that. No problem. It's those interruptions where we actually find the interesting stuff of life, the stuff that we make movies about. It's the stuff that we uh, realize about ourselves. Think about this. If you were to look back over your life and nothing had ever interrupted your own plan, you had a plan for your life, here's how it's going to go, and it just went like that, how, how exciting would your stories be? How deeply refined would your character be? We always want things to go to plan, and yet looking back, we're usually grateful for the times that things didn't go to plan. Well, as you might suspect with this kind of setup, the brothers go down to Egypt and things do not go according to their plan. The mission, go to Egypt, get grain, bring it home. But when they get there, they run into the first difficulty, which is dealing with Egypt's governor. And this will pick up in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Nope, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Well, how's that simple plan going so far? Not well, is it? You imagine you go to the local grocery store. It's not the local grocery store, is it? No, you actually go to a government-owned grocery store of a foreign government. Got that? What could go wrong? And when you get there, they accuse you of being a foreign spy. Like, I'm just trying to buy the food. That's all I want to do. No. And so throws them in prison. This is uh, the, the first difficulty that they are facing. 
This is the first way that things have gone not according to plan. And I want us to be thinking as we go through this, why is Joseph doing this? He didn't have to do this, does he? They come down to Egypt to buy food like everybody else. He could treat them like everybody else. But he doesn't. And it says that he recognizes them, so we know that he's doing this to them because of who they are. Why? We'll leave that one to think about for a bit. Picking up the story, verse 18, after they have been in prison, all of them, for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. So this is the the second mission. Here's what it is. All you have to do is go back to, uh, to Canaan now, get your youngest brother, and bring him. Seems pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward. Think that's going to go just as easily as the first one has? Yeah. Probably going to run into some difficulties here too. And the first difficulty that they run into, before anything else happens, is they have to deal with their own consciences. These are the, 12, or these are the 10 brothers who sold Joseph into slavery all those years ago. And so listen to how they talk to each other about this. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. Do you hear how they are interpreting the situation that they found themselves in? That's kind of this karmic justice. How they are receiving back kind of what they did to somebody else. Here they are, this Egyptian governor who seems not willing to listen to them as they are begging him. And then they think back on it and they're like, you know what? This is what we deserve. This is what we deserve because there was a day many years ago where we did this exact same thing to our brother. Do you remember when we were listening to him in the pit and he's crying out to save his life and we refused to listen? The situation we're in right now is bad, but it is not something we don't deserve. We totally deserve this. That seems to be what they're dealing with is this, we are getting what we deserve kind of thing. Now, of course, Reuben is kind of like, you guys are getting what you deserve, but I was the one <laughs> who was saying even at the time, no, let's not do this. But no, you wouldn't listen. And now here we are. Look at where we are now. 
there's always one, right? Um, but you but you go back. That is kind of how it, how it went. But that's only the first difficulty they have to deal with. The second difficulty, the last two verses, and we're going to talk about this whole thing together. The second difficulty we get is dealing with despair. This is verse 27 and 28. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? I told you we were in and on a cliffhanger. That's as far as we're taking this story. We will find out what God is doing in the course of the rest of the book of Genesis. But for, for this point, they have no idea. But they're assuming the worst, aren't they? And think about this. This is so crazy. What has just happened, if you kind of zoom out and you look at just the facts, is, yeah, things were a little more difficult in, um, in Egypt than they'd expected, and not all of them are making the trip back. Their brother Simeon has been bound and taken to prison, but the rest of them have all the grain they came for and all the money that they used to buy it. So, in some sense, they have just gone to buy this food, and instead, it was just given to them freely. I mean, cost of a brother, sure. But the way that they interpret them being not only given grain, but also having that silver returned, they're not seeing this as a good thing, are they? If they were seeing this as a good thing, he would see the silver in his sack and say, oh my goodness, the silver is my sack. And, they, and then their hearts would rejoice and say, wow, look at what God has done. And instead, they look at it and it says their hearts sink. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? They see the extra silver in their sack as evidence of God's judgment on them. Huh. Well, where are they getting that? They're getting that from their own guilty consciences. They still, after all these years, look back on what they did with their brother with deep regret and pain, and it's too late. They can't undo it. And they have always, I assume, had kind of in the back of their minds, one day this is going to come back on us. And in this situation, when they're dealing with Egypt, yep, today's the day. Now it's come back on us, and we're having to deal with that. And in fact, this is not just something that is happening with this Egyptian governor who seems like kind of a jerk to us. It's not just about that. God is doing something to us. But we don't know what. But we know it's bad. That's where they are. And that's kind of where the, the cliffhanger ends. But let's, um, let's take another look at this whole thing of what's really going on. I asked you earlier why Joseph is treating them the way that he is. So what do you think? You figured it out? Do you know why Joseph is treating them the way that he is? 
Ooh, that's good. To make them think about what they did. See, there are several ways you could answer why Joseph is doing what he's doing. And one is just simple vengeance. You did it to me, I do it to you. (laughs) I don't think that's what's going on. There is something going on here, though, that is a fitting, um, kind of punishment fitting the crime sort of thing, where, do you remember when Joseph came to Egypt? He was wrongly accused and imprisoned. And here his brothers come to Egypt, and what happens with them? They get wrongly accused and put in prison. Yeah. And so there is a sense where you're going, this does kind of match up pretty nicely. And so you could say, well, he's just doing to them what they did to him. But he's not. When you look at how he's treating his brothers, it is with, uh, yes, he's speaking to them harshly, that sort of thing. But he's actually being pretty good to them. Yes, he wrongly accuses them and puts them in prison. How long was he in prison? A minimum of two years. He puts them in for three days. Eh, Not exactly apples to apples there. And then I also think if he were doing this just as vengeance and retribution, we wouldn't have that moment where he's weeping, right? And he certainly wouldn't return their silver to them. Like the way that I read this, Joseph has already forgiven his brothers for what they did to him. And he is not treating them this way because he's still bitter and angry about what they did to him. He's not treating them out of his, out of his own bitterness. It's like what Jan said. He is wanting them to think about what they've done, but he's also wanting to test them and see who they are now. It's been a long time since he's seen these people. Are they still who they were? He's not who he was. We've watched him. We've seen him change a lot in the time since he last saw his brothers. Well, what about them? Have they changed at all, or are they still the same guys that sold him into slavery all that time back? Don't know. Let's find out. (laughs) And this, I think, is part of what's going on. We're getting that testing of them, that interruption to their own plan and their own schedule, and, and we'll get to see, okay, when things don't go their way, who are they now? Earlier on in life, when things didn't go their way, they tried to figure out a way to make it work for them. How about now? In our Wednesday night Bible study, we're all the time asking, you know, how does this point to Jesus? We do that here as well. And this particular story, I think, points to Jesus in a lot of ways. But I'll point out a couple of them. One is the way in which Joseph makes them face up to their sin. When Reuben says, now we must give an accounting for his blood, I think that's right. They are, having, they are being held account for that. But that doesn't mean that they're actually getting the punishment they deserve, are they? If it were a one-to-one, you did this to me, therefore I do this to you, oh, they would be in trouble. But it's not. 
they are getting the grain they've asked for. They are getting uh, the silver bag. They're getting it all for free. They are uh, and being sent home accordingly. They held in prison for a little bit, but that's not as punishment for what they did, but it's more this being held accountable for what they've done. And so this is where when we think about what it means to be forgiven, sometimes we think about this in terms of even like an apology, and you say to somebody, hey, I'm sorry, and they say, no problem. And we think that's what forgiveness is. It's just God saying, no problem. That is not forgiveness, is it? God does not say that our sin is no problem. No big deal. Didn't even notice. (laughs) But instead, it is the response of saying, it is a problem. But I'm going to deal with it. It is a problem, but I will take care of it. And so... This is where confession comes in, that when it comes to forgiveness, it is important that we actually do face up to our sin and the consequences of sin and the seriousness of sin, even though we are already assured of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And you can read all through the New Testament. As Paul talks about, that doesn't mean because we have uh, this grace that we should just Go on sinning. Oh, I guess it's no big deal to sin then, huh? No, it is. It really, really is. And if we're not facing up to that, we're not taking it seriously. And I think that's what uh, Joseph is doing with them, is having them face up to what they've done, but doing so in an environment of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if you're thinking... There's still an elephant in the room we've left out. You're correct. This story is certainly not over. But even for now, one of the other ways that this points to Jesus is that those nine brothers go free because one doesn't. Did you notice that? He keeps one brother bound and in prison so the others can go free. In other words, Simeon is kind of taking what they deserve and they go free. Does that point to Jesus at all for us? That he's the one who takes what we deserve? That we get to go free? I hope that you are at a point where you understand the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God for us in Jesus. to the point that you can face up to your sin, that you can admit it, you can honestly and openly admit what it is that you have done that you knew you should not have done, that you did anyway, (laughs) that you can admit it, knowing that there will be consequences, but there will be forgiveness, that you would be able to do so also knowing that Jesus has already taken care of that. That he has paid the price so that we can be free. And therefore, can receive the blessings of God as the blessings they are, rather than as as these brothers did, 
where they see the silver in their sack and they just think it's further evidence that God is against them, that this is somehow going to go even worse. There is a context for everything. And as I say, we're leaving on a cliffhanger. We don't know how this whole story is going to go yet. We don't know how our story is going to go yet either. But there's a context for everything. And in the same way that if you are reading a book of a certain genre, if it is a comedy or if it is a tragedy, you may not know all the twists and turns the story is going to take, but you have a pretty good idea of which kind of story this is and therefore how it's going to turn out. The context of this story, the context of our story, the context of the whole world is a story of God's love for us in Jesus of a God who takes sin very seriously but has already done uh, what it takes to deal with it so that we can be with him, that we can receive uh, the good things he has to give, and we can see that as further evidence of his grace and mercy and forgiveness rather as evidence of the um, further condemnation that we deserve. Paul reminds us, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With that, let's not let our hearts sink. Let our hearts rejoice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.